Hi, this is Kurt to talk about five steps to obeying Jesus. In an upper room of a house in ancient Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples ate Passover dinner. After this meal, which we call the Last Supper, he spoke to them, imparting wisdom, for he knew that this was their last night together. For the life they had led was done. It was over. A few hours after dinner in the Garden of Gethsemane, the temple guards arrested Jesus, tried him, convicted him falsely, beat him, crucified him the next day. Little did the disciples know that night while they relaxed after dinner that the authorities were coming for Jesus. Now they couldn't comprehend the death of their leader and they couldn't fully understand the words spoken to them that night in the upper room. How could they? For the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God had not yet come into them. That night, Jesus told the gathered disciples that he had a very simple test for those who claimed to love him. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. John 14, 15. Jesus made it clear that love is action, not mere words. If you keep his commands, then you have demonstrated your love for him. Now, it took the disciples a long time to understand these things. They had to throw off the shackles of daily existence to turn away from the rewards the world offers and turn towards the glory they found in God. After the crucifixion and resurrection came Pentecost. The Holy Spirit touched the disciples that day, 50 days after Easter, touched the disciples that day, and they surrendered to Jesus. They obeyed his commands from then on. They sought to serve God and they lived their lives accordingly. Now, in the same way, by surrendering to Christ, we put our individual preferences and desires in second place behind his kingdom and his righteousness. If you want to be obedient, if you want to keep his commands, I've got five ways, five steps we can all follow to do exactly that. The first step is the easiest. So let's start there. Number one, Follow the golden rule. Following this command will change your life. No hype, trust me, it will do just that. The door to a new life is open, but you have to take the step and walk through the door. Follow this command, this rule, and you will be on the right path. The golden rule really says this, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you from Matthew 7:12, Do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, you may not know the mind of Jesus yet, but I'm willing to bet you, you know your own mind, right? So it should be easy to figure out how to treat others. In every situation, in every moment, just treat those around you the way you would want to be treated if you were in those same circumstances. If you're driving and another driver screws up, Consider all the times you've made mistakes while driving. The other guy or gal probably got distracted or confused. When you made driving mistakes in the past, did you want someone to flip you off, honk, and drive up next to you giving you the evil eye? More than likely not. So this rule applies to everyone we know, everyone we meet, including those with whom we work. In fact, it means anyone we communicate with, face-to-face, -face, on the telephone, email, text, whatever it might be. So I know what you might be thinking, or I can guess what you might be thinking. 
the golden rule cannot possibly apply to mean people, can it? When someone treats you badly, walk away if you can. If you cannot, simply walk on, move on, walk away because the mean one is in your family, your neighborhood, or at work. Then the golden rule is the only possible solution to outright war. If you treat the mean one the way you would like to be treated, you may stop a quarrel, an argument, or a public disagreement. At a minimum, at a minimum, instead of adding fuel to the fire, you'll be taking it away. But Jesus did not give us the golden rule because he was naive. After all, he ran into some pretty mean people too. Those people went way beyond just being mean to him, right? Yet, he gave us a golden rule because he knew it's the best way to live and the best way to walk with him. So the next step is a bit tougher. Two, do not judge others. That's harsh. This command comes directly from our Lord. Jesus said this. He told them, told the disciples, told his followers, do not judge others. And the command goes like this. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 1 through 2. So Jesus made it clear the best approach was to avoid judging others. But if you can't stay away from judging, be careful to do so fairly and correctly. It's like an internal golden rule. Judge others the way you would like to be judged. But why did Jesus want us to stop judging others? It's so much fun. Well, one thing, we've all probably misjudged the situation, maybe condemned someone who is innocent. If you did that, I'm sure you'd feel miserable, but the consequences would still be bad. You'd be acting in the place of God. That's another reason not to try to judge others, because it's not our responsibility, it's his. So if we stop judging, if we stop condemning others, what, how do we do that? Well, pay attention. Your internal dialogue, every time you catch yourself convicting someone in your mind, stop it. Remember the mental golden rule. Think about others as you would like them to think of you. Treat others the way you would like them to treat you. So it may take you quite a while to stop judging others altogether, but... Breaking this nasty negative habit yields amazing benefits. Just think of the time you'd save if you weren't spending a lot of your time judging, complaining, condemning other people. Who knows? Now, the next step may sound really simple, but it's not. Three, seek God first. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's Matthew 6.33. Seeking God first establishes your priorities. Think of it in terms of budgeting. You know, if you say you want to save some money, most of us have at one time or another, and we plan to do it. But what we do is we, when the end of the month comes, we spend all the money, there's nothing left to save, and so we don't, we're not successful. We, we just don't save. So most of us, that doesn't work well. The best way to do it is how much of your income you want to save, put that money away as soon as you get paid. The, the phrase is pay yourself first. You may have heard that before, even probably from me. So if you want, you wish to save your immortal soul, 
not just something, some money. If you want to save your soul, if you want salvation, then doesn't it make sense to seek God first? When you save money, you pay yourself first. When you save your soul, you pay God first by seeking him and paying homage to him. Now, through human means and methods, you could, you could build a beautiful home. You could buy an amazing car. You could rub shoulders with incredible people. In fact, you could achieve all your worldly desires, whatever those might be. But the truth is that homes, cars, and even people do not last. The home eventually needs remodeling. The car gets nicked or dented, even gets wrecked. People you love may move away or die or even betray you. And even your own life will end someday. Then what? Now, one day I really got frustrated with myself because I understood the concept of seeking God first, but I wasn't living it. So I wrote Matthew 6, 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I, I, I put that on a post-it note, a yellow post-it note, and I slapped it on my computer. So every morning, every afternoon, every evening, whenever I sat down there, I'd see that note, Matthew 6, 33. And I'd stop for a second. In a small way, I disciplined my thoughts and my actions. I turned to God. Maybe I said a prayer. Maybe I read a Bible verse. Maybe I thought about something other than my computer or finances or whatever it might be. So that's the key. I changed the way I thought about things and what I did. And that's the next step. Number four, take captive every thought. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got random thoughts flying around in my head all the time. In this verse from Paul's second letter to the people of a Greek city called Corinth, touches on the very idea, the battle between our ears. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. This step is not a command directly from Christ. Instead, it's from the Apostle Paul, showing us how he trained himself to be obedient to Christ. And to be honest, I didn't get this when I first read it. I tried to live by it. I thought about it. I failed. And I failed because I read it as an effort to banish bad thoughts and think only good thoughts. Okay? What a joke is if I could do that. Rather than trying to banish bad thoughts, Paul told us to take captive every thought. No matter what thought pops in your head, good or bad, take it captive and turn it back to that which is most important to you. Do you control your own mind? The battle to define who you are to control your own mind happens to be happening right between your ears. The battle for our attention, our devotion, even our lives takes place in that place, that yawning, empty space between our ears, in my case. Paul told us to corral wayward thoughts and to take them captive. But not just wayward thoughts or bad thoughts. Good thoughts need to be made obedient too. Obedient to what, though? to that which is most important to you. As a Christian, the most important thing in Paul's life was Jesus, the Son of God. So Paul told us, if you want to do the way I did it, take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. To make this come to life, just spend a minute, right? You know, whenever we're done here in a few minutes, following your thoughts. You know, and it could be like, People you've seen walking a wayward dog. The dog really is walking the owner, right? The dog leads and the owner follows along. Don't be that guy or gal when it comes to your mind. Take your thoughts captive. Don't
Don't let random thoughts control you. Instead, control them. Turn them over to Jesus. Ask him to intervene and help you control your own mind. And that takes us to the very last step of five, which is five. Take up your cross. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. In this verse, Jesus foreshadowed the commitment he would soon have to make when he himself took up his cross and went to the place of execution. Jesus told the disciples what they had to do in order to be with him, to be his disciples. Each of them had to take up his cross. But does that apply to us too? Is Jesus also saying to us, take up your cross? I think he is. I think he is. But he's not telling us to do something he never did. Consider how he lived on earth. He taught, prayed, walked, preached, and healed. On the Sabbath, he worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem or the local synagogue. He was away. And he sought solitude to pray and commune directly with God. Jesus explained the essence of obedience in a graphic way that his listeners would understand. In the Roman days, to take up his cross meant one thing and one thing only. It meant crucifixion. The Romans frequently used the cross as a severe form of death penalty. <clears throat> Those condemned to the cross by the Romans had to take up their crosses, and walk with them to the place of execution. So when you listen for God's call in your life, you want to be obedient, you listen for God's call, how do you do that? Taking up your cross means that you commit your life to God, accepting that you love and obey a higher power, the creator of heaven and earth. And remember what Jesus said as he defined love in action. If you love me, keep my commands. So Jesus told us we can show our love for him by obeying his commands. But what are they? What are his commands? Well, the two greatest, <clears throat> the two greatest are love God and love your neighbor. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Matthew 22, 36 through 40. So these commandments give us two goals. And these are lifetime goals. You won't do it immediately or tomorrow or anything. But the two goals that are very important. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the goal of a lifetime. And you may improve over time. You, you, can, you feel like you love him completely now, and you may find your capacity to love him has increased because love is infinite. And also, we're told to love our neighbors. The second goal is to love our neighbor as ourself. And as he gave this commandment, Jesus told a story about a man we know as the Good Samaritan who helped a stranger in need. An author named William Hendrickson put it this way in his book, More Than Conquerors. It was a book recommended by Max Lucado. Hendrickson said, instead of asking, who is my neighbor, we should be neighbors to whoever the Lord happens to place in our path. 
Easy. Makes sense, right? So Jesus gave us his example during his life on earth. And he gave up his life out of obedience to God the Father. So he's not asking us to do something he has not already done. It's finished. His work on earth is done. But ours, our work, is underway. So if you want to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to love him and follow, obey his commands, here are the five steps. One, follow the golden rule. Two, do not judge others. Three, seek God first. Four, take captive every thought. And five, take up your cross. Good night.